Uh, we have been going through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Um, and we're, we're finishing off that little section this morning. And part of the reason we've been doing that is looking at how the church is meant to operate. How do these things play out? How do spiritual gifts work? How should they work? What does it look like for everybody to participate? We've been managing to cover <coughs> some fairly controversial and different kinds of topics. And this morning, as you would have followed along as Steve was reading, this morning's no different. This is why we preach through the Bible. Uh, this is uh, part of the reason why we, we put ourselves under God's word, is that we would know what is said about these things. Uh, not, not what we're entirely comfortable to talk about, even I'm not entirely comfortable to talk about. Not comfortable in the sense of not believing it's true, but not comfortable in the sense of I, I feel very inadequate this morning. And I know this is an emotive uh, topic, and I know it's a sensitive topic for many of us, and I don't want to do that ungraciously or unlovingly. So bear with me if we go slow, um, but also... Uh, I would trust that the Spirit speaks to each one. And may each of us be convinced from Scripture on these things. That's the most important thing to take away this morning. So Paul's point here, as he finishes up this little section, is that he is really, really adamant. There's something he really wants to make clear. And that is that all things will be done decently and in order in the church. Uh, some of us love order. Uh, so not that some of us don't love order. There's just some of us that love order a bit more than, than others. Uh, some of us love uh, making spreadsheets and Excel worksheets. And some of us would probably even do that to the extent of being very particular about decisions in life and put it on a, a spreadsheet. I know there's some in the room that do that. I don't know where you like order. I was thinking of it during the week. I was like, if there's one area in my life I like to be ordered, it's actually the clothesline. That sounds like a strange thing to say. But you know, the, peg, the pegs have to match. The clothes have to be orientated a certain way. You, know, you don't hang sleeves um, up. You know, it's just all those sorts of things. It's, it's straight lines. It's in order. It looks good and it's functional. All those sorts of things. The moment the clothes gets in, inside, that's a different matter. But maybe there's things in our lives that we like to order, things we like to arrange in a certain way. There's certain things in our lives that will just never be arranged in the right way. Maybe that plastic cupboard or the Tupperware cupboard is just never arranged in the right way. What do you like to do that's decent and in order? And Paul's instruction to and God's command, as we see in verse 37, God's command here to all the churches is that when the church comes together, when it meets together, all things must be done decently and in order. He doesn't give us the order necessarily, but he says it must have order, must have this structure. And his whole this is his whole response to this Corinthian question he's been answering since the start of chapter 12, where he said, now concerning the things you've wrote about, concerning the spiritual things you mentioned. This has been his answer, and his closing point is decently and in order. This 
is what it looks like, this is why it has to look like that, and this is how we can do it. And those are the things we want to think about this morning. What it looks like to do things decently and in order. Why we should do it that way and how we might even be able to do it. So what does it look like to do things decently and in order? Uh, I'm sure one of your pet peeves, pet peeves similar to mine is when people cut in line. Whether you're waiting at the supermarket or some other line, when someone cuts in, they disrupt the order. That's, that's unfair, it's unjust. If someone steals your car park, especially as you're indicating to enter in it and they grab it, that is also out of order. It's unjust, not fair. And we thought a little bit last week about how everyone who comes to church, as we all come, we all bring something to contribute. All of us bring something. And everything's done for the building up. As we thought about that, we mentioned and uh, considered that that doesn't mean that everyone gets to do everything at the same time. There's still an order to what people bring. And in the church at Corinth, there'd clearly been things out of control. There'd been things out of order. Everyone was doing whatever they liked. If you were to go back in time and, and observe the Corinthian church as they met together, you would see people getting drunk on communion. Uh, you would see them exercising their spiritual gifts in very selfish ways, where people would come in, they didn't even know what was going on because everybody was just talking at the same time, doing whatever they want, and there was competing with one another, speaking over the top of one another. And there was a lot of this going on. Paul pulls them back in. He says, sometimes in church it's time to be silent. Not everyone speaks at the same time. Not everybody shares at the same time. His appeal for orderliness. I can't get the orderliness to my words. His appeal is centered on self, like, on um, self-forgetfulness, forgetting that you're there for you. But what can you do to be self-controlled? What can you do to be deferential to think of others? That's where his appeal for orderliness comes from: be self-controlled and deferential. Can you control yourself? Can you wait your turn? Uh, can you consider others? So there's three silences he gives in these verses. Three silences. In the first one, verses 27 and 28, he talks about tongues were being misused. Speaking of tongues was being misused. It, correction was needed. There was something out of order. He says only two or three should speak. Each in turn, not all at the same time. And each must be accompanied, accompanied with interpretation. And if those things don't happen, there must be silence. Clearly, the church in Corinth, uh, we see that they were treating the gifts of tongues and speaking in tongues, especially as a super spiritual thing. And those who were practicing this gift were doing so without self-control, without love for others, and without order. So this was a gift that needed regulating. This was a gift that needed boundaries. Some tongue speakers were speaking when they should not have been. The next thing that Paul says is being abused is prophecy. Verse 29 to 32, he talks a bit more detail about prophecy. Prophecy was being abused and correction was needed. 
the correction or the, the problem was. Again, people are speaking all over the top of each other. No one's waiting while another speaks. No one could hear what was being said, and more importantly, what was being said couldn't be evaluated, couldn't be weighed to see if it was truthful. This was a gift that also needed boundaries, needed regulating. Some were speaking when they shouldn't. Obviously, the next silence is the uncomfortable one. The other thing that was happening out of order is women were speaking out of order in some form or another, and correction was needed. So there's three times Paul says there has to be silence in this scenario, with tongues being abused, prophecy being abused, and in some context, when women were speaking when they shouldn't. So we do want to consider this this morning, just because it's here, it's instructive for us. But there's also, I want to acknowledge this is, a, this is a hard part of scripture to understand. It seems very antithetical to how we think the world works, how we see things operating. And as we read the text, we realize that even the text itself is not as clear as it first appears. Because Paul is saying here in chapter 14 and verse uh, 34 and 35, that women need to keep silent. But we know there's something that could not mean, if you think of it in the negative first. There's something that could not mean because just a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 11, he's clearly saying that women do speak in church. There's prophesying and there's praying and there's things going on in church where all are involved and women are clearly involved. So what on earth is Paul meaning? He's clearly okay with people, with women speaking in church and participating in a church service. But then he says, they are to be silent. What are some options here? <coughs> what are some options? Let's, there's a few different ways that people would approach this. Because it's a troubling thing, seems to seeming contradiction. One option is, are these just troublemaking women? So women are a bit louder than normal, causing disorder and chaos, and Paul's bringing just a particular group of women back into line. Is it, is it that? Uh, is it just wives? Is it just wives speaking over the top of their husbands? And they're the ones that need bringing back into line because they're being disrespectful in a public setting. Is it just that? These are all reputable uh, biblical scholars and teachers and people would, would have some of these views. Another view, this is given by more than you might realise, are these verses just not part of the original text of the Bible and we can ignore them? That's also a view put forward. Or, I think the most unfair one, but a very popular one, it was Paul, just a chauvinist pig. Hated women. That is a perspective put forward by many in this discussion. I think all of those options fall far, far short of what the text is trying to actually teach us. It almost ignores the text, doesn't deal with it legitimately, certainly doesn't deal with the context of chapter 11, and it certainly doesn't deal with the whole of what scripture says about women and about women in ministry. 
when we come to difficult things in the Bible, and this is a difficult passage, difficult to understand in some ways, difficult to apply, when we come to a difficult part of scripture, and there are a few, we have to find a way to find the clear passages. What's another passage in the scripture that speaks into this to give us clarity? We already know then from looking at the context in chapter 11, women are allowed to speak in churches in some contexts. So we know something from the context. We know something. What other parts of scripture though speak to it? What's a clear part of scripture that speaks in a similar way? We have that. We have that in 2 Timothy. Again, an uncomfortable passage, but one that states it in a similar way and clearly with a bit more context. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. We read this. Uh, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. There's a similar wording in 1 Corinthians 14 to 1 Timothy where Paul is clearly referencing the same sort of context. When are women going to be quiet in the church? Not all the time, clearly, but there's a certain time when they should learn quietly. There's something forbidden here for women. And I believe Paul speaks in the whole of context from Timothy and here in Corinthians and other passages as well, is that there is a specific type of teaching. Because 1, 2, 1 Timothy 2 and goes into chapter 3, talks about the position of authority. Goes on to talk in more detail about that, the position of elders, how elders are qualified and what they're meant to do. And Paul is as instructing Timothy in how he's to be himself as an elder and how he's to train up other pastors and elders. He said there's something that he has to guard. There's something that he has to do. There's something that he has to uphold. And that's this deposit that Paul talks to Timothy of. This deposit is often referred to as the, the teaching of the apostles, the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. Guard this, teach it, preach it, live it, encourage others to live it out as well. There's an authoritative teaching that Paul says in Timothy, that is the context and where women are silent there. Teaching. And that's, again, how do we define that? Because that is, I think, unfairly loosely just all categorised in preaching in our Western church in some ways. But it's the kind of public discourse, the kind of po public oration that happens when the church comes together. Back in 26 of chapter 14 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it says that everyone brings something, and one of those things that is brought is a lesson, a teaching, a teaching. So from Scripture, from Timothy, from Corinthians, we see it's the responsibility of the elders of the church to oversee and practice what is taught. This is the one type of public teaching that is restricted, that is regulated, that is forbidden. So what does Paul mean in this context? He said, well, he's not talking about that here, but I think 
Now the passage gives us clarity here based on what we know from 1 Timothy. We then come back to 1 Corinthians 14. And we see that Paul is talking about the weighing of the prophets. As people speak in church and as people are prophesying, others are weighing what is said. Now clearly there's a lot of people involved in that. Anybody in church can be, can be discerning and weighing. But the, the buck stops, I suppose. The buck stops with the elders. Who determines whether something is fully heretical or the discipline associated with that? Most of us would recognise heresy, all of us probably to a certain extent, could recognise when something is wrong. But who steps in to say, hey, no, you can't teach that. You can't say that. That's not in accordance with the rest of Scripture. Paul from Timothy says, that's elders. That's male elders. And we see that prophecy must be weighed. So if it must be weighed, then it doesn't come with its own inbuilt authority where you can do whatever you want or say whatever you want. It has to be tested against God's revealed word and what Christ has done. 1 Thessalonians talks about it being proven and tested as well against the apostles' teaching. That is what prophecy is weighed against, against the apostles' teaching. And we see that that domain, the protection of the apostles' teaching, the standing up for it, is in the domain of the elders. Sorry, a bit heavy, isn't it? Now, Paul, what he's not doing, though, what he's not doing that we can judge from what we looked at in Timothy, but also here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is not condemning all forms of public ministry for women. He's not. He's just regulating it. He's regulating it. It's regulated for males, too. If you go on and read 1 Timothy 2 and 3, it's regulated to a select group of people, males. Only a certain category of people are in there. So even majority of males are left out of that category. What Paul is doing, what he is doing, if that's not his, he's not excluding women from public service, from ministry. What he is doing, he's reining in what has been over the top, what's been uh, extravagant, what's been out of control, what's been disorderly. What's been the expression of some believers who thought they had the authority to do whatever they wanted in the church. They had the authority to decide what would be practiced and when it would be practiced. And that they could ignore the clear command and design of God. Paul, through this, this whole series, is speaking to the need for maintaining the right use of the spiritual gifts the right use of the spiritual gifts and the right use of divinely ordained gender roles. Gender roles is is not something that's antiquated, that we're just stuck with, that Christians just have to put up with, that we're just on the wrong side of history and we just have to live with it. Gender roles are a gift from God meant for our good and for our flourishing. But we react against these sorts of things. And rightly so, because in so many contexts we see them abused. 
And it's common for us to stop and go, what, what about the world now? What about culture now? What about society now? Our world is very different to Paul's. Yes and no. Yes and no. Luckily, Paul was do, dealing with things that were wrong in that culture and correcting it with scripture. There are a lot of things that are very different. We don't so much talk about head coverings in relation to women speaking in church in our culture. That's a different topic. We're not gonna, that's not something that we can understand very clearly. His culture was different in some ways. Or we appeal to what's practical. Well, there's a need that we have. There's pragmatic things. You know, we, need, we need gifted speakers of any kind who speak God's word, and that is true. We do need them of any kind. We need everybody in the body speaking the truth of God, wherever they are. But our desire, most of all, must not be to be culturally relevant. Even Paul wasn't culturally relevant. His teaching and instruction here in 1 Corinthians 14 is actually very against the culture of the time. He's talking about all, all people learning and have an opportunity to learn, especially in the context of speaking about women, that all women would learn and be encouraged. There was not many women that had access to education in Paul's day. It was actually uh, look, looked upon as a shameful thing to, for a woman to be educated. But he says all should have an opportunity to learn, all should be encouraged. So we can't concern ourselves with our current cultural narrative, because even the cultural narrative and what the culture told back then was inaccurate and needed correcting in the other way. Women needed to be brought in and treated as equal, and Paul was a corrective in that. The other reason we shouldn't rely on culture and society is that culture changes, sometimes very rapidly. That is the one guarantee, there's two guarantees we can have, culture will change, God won't. Now, what some would believe what we're, what I'm teaching this morning, which is a term will be called complementarianism. Some would say that's that's a narrow term, that's outdated. Again, we need to be far less concerned with isms. Said this a few weeks ago when we talked about cessationalism and all those sorts of things. Be far less concerned with what's an ism and what's an ist. Far more concerned with what does scripture teach us? And if you think differently this morning to me, that's okay, but please be convinced from scripture. Please be convinced from scripture on these matters. We need to be biblical. What does Paul appeal to for this argument? Because that's an important thing to acknowledge. If he's saying that in all the churches of the saints this happens, that they are not permitted to speak, he says well, they should be in submission as the law also says. What does he mean there? Because where do we find in the law where it says women are to be silent or in submission? And you can do a bit of a hunt if you want. Maybe that's your homework for the week. Go read the whole Bible. Um, but when Paul is referencing the law here, this is a, it's a catch-all for the Old Testament, if we can look at it as simply as that. The law is referred to either as the Deuteronomic law with Moses sometimes, just that, Exodus and the Ten Commandments and the Deuteronomic law, or it's referred to as the first five books of the Bible, which include Genesis, Exodus, 
all those right through to the Mosaic law. Paul's already used this reference of the law when he's actually referred and quoting Isaiah just a few verses earlier. So Paul looks at the whole of scripture, the whole of his known scripture that he had as the law, God's word, God's revelation for how we should live and operate. And when he's mentioning here the law, again from other parts, and we go back to 1 Timothy 2, if we read further on, he would start to talk of the created order. The male was created first, Adam was created first, then Eve. So submission in creation order is not then, and we do not understand it in terms of hierarchy. It's not in terms of hierarchy, but in terms of God's order, what was first? What came first? God created in a certain order for a certain reason. We don't know all the reasons for that, but we know from the way our hearts react to this that it's not natural for us. That that order that God made is, does not come naturally at all times. For men it doesn't come naturally to be the first, to be the leader all the time. And for women it certainly doesn't come naturally and sin has affected that to the extent where we're told that women will compete against their husbands. Desire will be against their husbands. So what was the reason God made things in this order? We see from Christ's example, if we had time to go to Ephesians 5, I think one of the reasons for this order is that we see the main reasons that men would be sacrificial, that men would sacrificially and, and lead as servants just as Christ did, that they would love their wives as Christ loved the church, and that they would provide and sacrifice and lead in such a way that displays Christ. And when men do that, there wouldn't be anything out of order. If we had more men that would sacrificially lead and be servants and be like Christ, there would not be an issue with any of this teaching, I believe. But God has put an order into the home and into the church. So an important test we've seen in previous weeks as we thought about spiritual gifts, a test of spiritual maturity is not how you exercise your gifts. It's love. Another test we can add to that, a test of true spiritual maturity is love and submission to apostolic teaching. If you want to be spiritually mature, we put ourselves under what has been revealed to us in Scripture. We put ourselves under what the apostles laid down, the gospel of Christ, the teaching of Paul and others. Ordered worship, doing things decently in order means trusting what God has laid down. So these three silences, we see that it looks like this. Looks like this. Wise and biblically informed Christian worship does not pursue freedom at the expense of order or unrestrained spontaneity at the expense of reverence. We don't pursue freedom at the expense of order and we don't pursue unrestrained spontaneity at the expense of reverence. We are coming together to meet with God 
to have his presence among us. That is a reverent thing we should do. What does it look like practically? Worship that's done decently and in order will look like a place where all people can be welcomed and all believers in Christ can be welcomed to practice their gifts for the mutual edification, mutual building up of one another and the encouragement of one another under the leadership that God's ordained. What does that mean practically for us as a church here at Marion? We believe here at Marion that male and female are created compatible, that God made us to work together alongside of each other, that men and women are equal in value, dignity, gifting, but function in different roles according to what God has ordained and given in the home and the church. At Marion, we do have only male elders. At Marion, you may have noticed, we, our main teaching that we, we see as responsibility of elders is the Sunday morning pulpit time. All other roles and tasks in the church biblically can and should be done by anybody, as long as they're committed believers and under in fellowship with their fellow believers. That is what it should mean for us. Hopefully what it does mean. This doesn't mean we, we treat women as less. And if you feel that way this morning, then, then please come and speak to me or any of the elders. That's not something that we're aiming for. All here are equal. No gender is better than another. but we acknowledge because of sin, we compete with one another. But because of the gospel, because we are believers in Christ, that we must care for one another equally and treat each as equally valuable, seen, contributing, participating. As an overall thing, this means we, we can't remove the limits according to our conscience. We can't remove the limits that we believe God's put in place. It also means we not, should not put limits where God hasn't put any. Uh, we also, I also, and I think we as a church, we don't hold this view so strongly as if you disagree with us. It's a salvation, it's not a salvation issue. This is an important one in some regards, but it's, it's a secondary issue. It's a secondary issue. One we must hold with complete humility. Why does it need to be done like this? If that's what it looks like, why? And Paul says in verse 26 that we looked at last week, it's for the building up. We do things decently and in order for the building up. The call is for order, the call is for the peaceful presence of God to be on display. That means not everyone speaks at the same time. Not everyone will get to speak all the time. Not because of, or not, sorry, not everyone will speak every time. Not because of a lack of gifts, but because the aim is edification, the aim is building up. Not just a selfish, how am I gonna express myself today? That's not the aim of church. Just because you have a gift 
It doesn't mean that you must perform it at every public gathering of the church. Just because you have something to say doesn't mean you get to say it when others are speaking. We, we operate that like that in life. It's good to have that same order in church. If you're unsure perhaps this morning, I might have something to offer. I might have something that's beneficial to the church. But I'm unsure. I don't know. How do I get to do that if I don't get to do that? And that's, that's a very valid question, I think. And let's encourage you to enter into the community of the church. Speak to a Christian friend who knows you. Speak to someone who's spiritually discerning. Especially speak to leaders in the church. But also don't view your spiritual gift and don't view your ministry through this single lens that happens on a Sunday morning in the pulpit, on the stage. It doesn't. That's a too narrow a view of gifts. It's a too narrow a view of what happens here as well. It's not even meant to be all that you get during the week is what happens here. That's not. We do this as life together. Express these things in your community, your faith community. Express them in, your, in the GCs, in your prayer meetings. It'll be clear to others if you have a gift when you're in full community. A word of caution though, if you think your gift is exceptional and you don't really need to submit uh, to any form of leadership or any form of weighing of what you might have to say, then it's probably a good indication you need to be silent in the church. That's for everybody, not just men and women. Another reason why we do this, so all can learn learn and be encouraged, verse 31 tells us this. Equality, like equal learning and equal encouragement, that's our aim as we come together. This isn't just a gender issue, it's a learning style issue sometimes. It's a maturity issue, it's a gifting issue. <coughs> For all to learn and be encouraged, we have to be careful about how we communicate what we teach and who teaches it and why we're doing it. We have to seek to engage as many as possible. Because there's some here that don't know much about Jesus. There's some here that might not know anything really about Jesus. There's some that know a little. There's some that know a lot and there's some that think they know everything. How do we engage as a church and teach in a way that all are learning and all are encouraged? We want to avoid this a culture where there'll be a lack of learning, where there'll be ignorance on certain matters that are really important. And we certainly want to avoid a culture and atmosphere where there'll be discouragement and a casting down. One of the main reasons as to why we do things decently and in order is because God commanded it. Verse 37, Paul tells this to the Corinthian church, what I am writing to you, the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. There's something here to be obeyed. For all churches, for all time, in all cultures. If we design a church where things, if we desire a church where things are done decently and in order, we, we can't become our own authority. And that's what had happened at Corinth, as Paul rhetorically asked them those questions. 
Was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it's reached? Are you your own authority on these things? Or has God laid down what is authoritative? Our longing has to be, our aim has to be one, (laughs) one thing. If God is a God of, not of confusion, but of peace, and if we want his presence to be known, where people from outside will come in and say, surely God is among you. Our aim must be one thing. What will make God's peaceful presence known among us? What will make God's peaceful presence known among us? Cup of water under my seat, please. So if there's something here to be obeyed, we have some questions to ask of ourselves. When my choices and God's commands clash, who wins? Who wins in that battle? Our reluctance to submit to God, what God has commanded needs to be kept in check, not just in these issues, but in so many others. We can read this and study this and look at it this morning and go, well, God's just a killjoy. Or Luke's just a killjoy. Or that approach is a killjoy, or that interpretation is just prohibition for the sake of it. It's unfair, it's unjust. But there's nothing unfair or unjust when God gives a command. God's commands are not burdensome for us. They're not meant to be. They're hard. But they're not meant to be burdensome. God's no's, God's no's are for our flourishing. So how can we do it? How can we do it? That's what it looks like. This is why we do it. How can we do it? Especially when it's a command from God. Again, just thinking on that thing. God's no's are not just for the sake of no. God's no's are for our good. True identity is... I'm getting baptism here. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Libby. True identity, our true identity is not found in opposition to God's will. Not found in opposition to God's will. What is submission? Because it's such a dirty word for so many of us. Again, because we've seen it mistaught, misapplied. Submission, what is submission truly? It's, It's laying down what I want for what God wants. Submission is laying down what I want for what God wants. And this is one of the wonders of the Christian faith and one of the great things I think about this passage and what it teaches us for all its uncomfortability is that we get to display Jesus to one another. In how we submit to one another, we get to display Jesus. 
we get to show Jesus to one another. What would be lost if we ignored this command? I think we'd lose something of the wonder of what Jesus has done. We lose something of the power of Christ's humility and sacrifice when we dismiss the teaching of Scripture in these matters. Men get to show servant leadership, not seeking their own glory or selfish ambition. Women get to show as well the humility of Christ, not seeking their own selfish desires or ambition either. But when gender roles are just done away with entirely, we lose something of the power of Christ's humility. What do we know of Christ? Of bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Christ was fully equal with God, but he didn't count that as something to hold on to strongly. Instead, he submitted himself to his Father's will, and he took a crown of thorns and the cross for us. And Jesus didn't just submit to something painful because his Father made him do it. He did it out of love. He did it because he loved you and I. And he did it despite the pain, despite the cross. He did it for the joy that was set before him. Now, dying to yourself and submitting to God's will is painful. It's hard. It hurts. But for the joy that's set before us of resurrection power living in us, the spirit alive and testifying to our spirit that we are children of God, that is something worth doing. If you've found this passage this morning difficult, as I have, if you look at this passage and say, well, there's something I've missed out on, there's something I've lost, Or there's something I have to carry. Stop and count what you've gained. And if by some miracle you reach the end of the blessings that you can count up in Christ because of what he's done for you, if by some miracle you reach the end of all those, just look to him. Because he's wonderful enough in himself. And that is what we gain when we look to a saviour who has humbled himself for us and served us and carried our sins and our sorrows. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in these verses that can cause us grief in a certain way. There's so much that can cause us doubt and confusion. Lord, we look and we see you're a God of peace. You're a God who longs to be with his people. A God who is with his people, indwelling every one of those who put their faith in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for what Christ has done for us, that even though he could have stayed with you, and even though he was fully equal with you, He humbled himself and became a servant.
became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Lord, as we look at many things in our, our lives that do not align with your will, Lord, forgive us where our selfish ambition seeks to displace your word. Forgive me for where I have disobeyed your commands. Lord, humble us to know that you're a great God who does things for our good. But more than this, humble us to know that you're a great God who loves us, provides forgiveness, provides healing for where these things have gone so horribly wrong, and provides hope of true life lived with a joy that can be set before us. Thank you for the example of Christ and thank you that we have an opportunity to live this out in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.